Welcome back to a sort of Young Person's Guide to Prog Rock, and we are going to rejoin Revolver before we flip over to side two. Let's leave Paul's whimsy behind in the yellow submarine, and we are going to get heavy with John on She Said, She Said. Without further ado, I'm going to lead us into the second half of the Beatles' Revolver. So we come back off of, of Paul's whimsy into um, John's song. And actually, to the point about their drugs, this is a story about them all taking drugs with Peter Fonda. He had a story about getting shot as a child, I believe, and said he died on the operating table and said, so I know what it's like to be dead. And then John said, you're harshing my mellow. You're making me feel like I've never been born. And thus the song was born. So this is very much a, a song getting, again, getting metaphysical. It's three little bits spliced together, and this is, a, this is a, a John song all the way through. Yeah. So whenever I listen to this song, just based on the title of the song, the fact that it's She Said, She Said, my interpretation of the song was that it was a girl that John was with that where they were exploring psychedelic drugs together. And she said, I know what it's like to be dead because you have sort of out of body experiences doing psychedelic drugs. That's totally plausible. I never realized that it was like a very literal quote taken from somebody that they were with. And it was, had nothing to do with she said, or it's nothing to do with whatever she said, because it was Peter Fonda. He said, so it was kind of misleading because I found that same uh, little interesting tidbit as well. On a completely different note, I think this song is really fun when it does its uh, time signature changes. Like you said, it's three different songs stitched together. And John, I don't think John ever really does. I don't think he does this a lot. It's not like a John signature move. So I think that was that no. was kind of fun of him to experiment with that. Well, as far as I recall, actually, he had these three bits, and then George, I believe, said, let's just do them together. Like George said, let's, let's just string them together. And I think he actually did that with the We Can Work It Out as well. They go into a, a three over four waltz for the, for the verse, mm -hmm. or for the chorus, rather. And that, again, was just a random George idea where he's like, let's just completely change up the time signature. Mm. But they do this so well that I only notice it when I think about mm -hmm. it. Other than that, it just feels like a, a complete song that just flows. But it is something very signature of Prague to do such things. That's why I wanted to make oh, yeah. sure to point it out. And this is just in, done in a more condensed version. It's like, hey, let's yep. take a Prague song and squish it into three minutes. I was going to say, I think that's what makes it feel so smooth. Is I can't believe they did, covered all that ground in three minutes. And uh, I'm just reading this now off of the Wikipedia page is uh, Paul walked out during the session and it's believed that Harrison performed the bass guitar part for this song. Yes, I actually think, I feel like that's a tidbit somewhere in the back of my mind that this is the only time that Paul didn't play on a song. Right, yeah, yeah. So thank you, Wikipedia. <laughs> yeah, I also thought it was only Jones doing some psychedelic things with a girl. Yeah, to be, to be honest, I didn't fully understand what <laughs> what it means. To be fair to this song, I, I suspect that this was the story behind it. And then, obviously, it's just such a cool line. She said, she said, and she's making me feel like I've never been born. Like, that's such a cool line. 
Because uh-huh. I don't think he's telling the story of what happened that night. I think he's just telling this really cool tale about, you know, what is existence even, basically. I think he's just saying something cool and kind of psychedelic. I don't think this is a, a narrative. And when he was a boy, everything was right? <laughs> like, maybe he's uh, just saying, before I knew all this stuff that I know, life was sweet, and now I know what I know. Ignorance is bliss. Ignorance is bliss. And I guess that, like, you know, for lads of only, what, 22, 23, 24, they've seen some stuff. They've lived a life already. Mm. Okay. Life, dead, ignorance. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Lots of themes going on in three minutes. (laughs) Yeah, it's a lot of information. And actually, much like the time signatures, like condensing all this information in three minutes. But this is, again, a very prog move. Lots Lots of thoughts going on. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And then again, we come to Paul coming back with a good day, sunshine. It's a song just about a beautiful summer's day. And he wrote it at John's house. And I guess the story behind this is he'd just go to John's house to write music, which really heartened me because like their creative partnership had, was still intact at this point. But he was waiting for John to wake up because he was only sleeping. <laughs> and uh, waiting for John to wake up and then just wrote this really beautiful song about a wonderful summer's day. Again, kind of like this is kind of like Sergeant Pepper is just the spectrum of songs on this. So again, we've got a, a jaunty kind of show tune. And I actually don't have much else to say about the song. It's a very pleasant song. And I leave it there like it's a pleasant song. Yeah, I have to disagree with you there. Um, I understand the harmonies in it are very good, but it's not something we haven't already heard from the Beatles. Um, The song overall, to me, is just way too repetitive, uh, lacking so much substance. Yes. That it's it's more. Uh, I believe uh, I in a future episode I'll have the same criticism of Paul for being overly saccharine. Okay. At times, yeah. and uh, this song really does that for me in that in that negative sense. Yeah. But you know, I I appreciate the the work and instrumentation it took to like ar- arrange the the tune. It's just not for me. Well, uh, it's a simple song, but like I I think. Before, I was also thinking it was not that impressive as a Beatles song. But then I went to Liverpool on a rainy day, and I've been living in Manchester for about a year. And I started to appreciate the sunny days and then the sunshine and yeah. when I'm in a good mood. And this is just, oh, yeah, yeah okay, I kind of understand you. It's just the, the simple happiness out of a person from a gloomy country. <laughs> Uh, speaking as a as a man from Seattle, I can definitely relate to that feeling. <laughs> Just like endless gloom. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, we come to Andrew Bird can sing, which again is John kind of being metaphysical. But I don't, I don't love this song either. Funny you should say that because I actually like this song a lot. So this is where yeah. our musical tastes differ here. But I love that John and Paul trade off doing lead vocals for the verses. I love that. It harkens back to earlier Beatles. And I feel like, I don't know, it might be the last time they do that. Like trade-off verses specifically. I know they sing together on many songs, but rarely do they do that. And I love the sort of descending, harmonized riff to lead off the song. It just, bang, comes in. It's, yep. it's a creative riff because it's not catchy. It's just good instrumentation um, mm. That really works with the whole song. 
and it's got that pop feel while still being edgy and i and that's what i like about it and uh, i i'll be honest like i didn't look at the lyrics for this one i don't know if i have a particular connection to the subject matter of the song but uh just as overall as a song i i like this one quite a bit one of my one of my favorites on the album actually mm. so i guess we, we don't we don't totally agree there but we don't have to yeah also this one out of all the guitar work this one is also among my favorites i think it's like a simple tune but it's not simple thoughts like they're being successful but they don't want to be too material yeah so it's so, uh, yeah it's cute so he'll he'll go back to this this mine time and time again with the so all you need is love i feel like kind of has the same thought as like you can have things but you can't have everything yeah. and then baby you're a rich man off of magical mystery tour will again be the same kind of vein of it's all good but you can't have absolutely everything yeah, and I think uh, now that I'm taking a look at the lyrics here, mm-hmm. I believe the Beatles uh, come back to this subject quite a bit of expressing um, a disconnect with the people that they're around. Like, you don't get me. Like, you think you can see me, but you can't see me. Like, I've been through stuff that nobody else in the world has gone through and nobody else ever will after me. You think you know me, but you don't. I think I think that some something that comes up in future songs uh, for them, I, I, I this can't be the only one um, where they talk about this because I feel like I, I remember it in some other tunes of theirs. So subject matter wise, I'm in on it too. There's some depth there. Yep. And then we go back to Paul for for no one, and this is just his song about romantic rejection. Basically, I, I was gonna say it's like it's been a very very interesting blend of themes on this album. I feel like John goes philosophical and Paul brings it back to the personal. And I actually think that is a, a huge strength of this album, but we've obviously just had Andrew Bird can sing, which is some kind of philosophy thoughts. And then this one's a pretty intrapersonal um, oriented song. How often do the Beatles use the clavichord that they use in this song? I know they go back to it in, in Sergeant Peppers. I, I think they do. Sergeant Peppers, definitely they use it in Magical Mystery Corps. And then because there's like 80 songs on the White Album, they got to have done that. Yeah. And actually, now that I think about it, I feel like they use it in the suite in Abbey Road as well. Props to Paul again for going outside of his comfort zone, uh, for using the French horn solo. Yep. Oh, yeah. Like probably hadn't been done in rock music up to that point. <laughs> yeah. So the, the French horn solo, they go back to that in uh, It's All Too Much. George Harrison's little jam. Like it's like a little flugelhorn solo or something. And I think Paul was just listening to classical music quite a bit during this period. So he just took these little little bits. But yeah, it's again just this weird little ear candy that keeps all these three minute songs interesting. Yeah, Paul does love the three four time signature. He he loves the waltz, I, I think. Goes back to probably the twenties music he loves. I didn't look at the lyrics, but I think it's pretty straightforward. Yeah. Yeah. It's like a breakup song. Yeah, I think he even was saying this about his girlfriend, Jane Asher, like at mm. the time. Uh, yes, that is in fact true. I just fact-checked that. Immediate fact-checking. Uh, the page open. So, we go back to John uh, for Dr. Robert. And this is an interesting one because uh, I, I've i not really thought of John as a personalities type of writer. As in, Paul writes these Eleanor Rigby songs. I've never really thought of John as a a slice of life type of writer, but this is a very slice of life type of song about a doctor that they all knew 
who used to sell everyone methamphetamine. So good times. It, it has been credited to somebody uh, for saying that this is probably the most explicit drug use or o- overt drug use reference in a song. Yeah. Uh, people would probably think that it's Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds, but uh, I believe we addressed that in a future episode as well. Yes, we'll talk. We'll talk deeply about that that song. But yeah, no, I think they could have obviously gotten away with it because they're just saying like it's a doctor who will cure what ails you. Wink, wink. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, the the line uh, "You'll pay money just to see yourself" is a great line. The Beatles showing their sense of humor a little bit there, because for being such a fantastic band, they don't really have a lot of those like really quotable lines. They're better at songwriting and arranging than lyric writing, I think. Yeah, that that might be true. I can think of like 10 better uh, lines from uh, Dark Side of the Moon. And I think this is probably just a a function of how fast they wrote all these songs. Because I don't want to say they feel like placeholder lyrics because I, I actually love a lot of their lyrics. But my goodness, they just had to slap lyrics on stuff. And so I think... Yeah. You know, you bring up Dark Side of the Moon. I think it's an album about things. And then, obviously, a lot of the prog will be covering the writing about, like, myths and legends and whatever. I think for the Beatles, they've just, like, short stories. They they came from a time period where lyrics were sugar rather than substance. Uh, one thing that I find very funny, because uh, I feel like the Beatles are being a little bit funny with this song... Um, is when they go to like almost like the church choral choir, like, well, 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 I'm feeling fine. During that part, like it sounds like they're singing it in a church. And I think that that's kind of them being funny uh, with like the whole subject matter. British humor. Mm -hmm. Now, and I was going to say again, even on this, that they'd think to throw in such a fun little breakdown. Mm -hmm. Yeah, those bridges really break up the song and make it interesting. And I think we can use this song to talk about artificial double tracking. To make a a vocal line thicker, traditionally you'd always just sing a second part on on top of the part you sang. However, John Lennon never liked doing it. And I think it it is incredibly hard to do. And especially if you have to do it right, because there's not editing in this time. And like, you have to sing it. And then you have to sing it really, really close so that it doesn't sound jarring. And it just thickens up the main vocal line. And then you mm-hmm. presumably mix them all onto one little, like one track, and then you've got a vocal line. So John hated doing it. So one of the techs in Abbey Road, specifically during this album, figured out that what you could do is just copy the lead line and then slowly or slightly alter the speed of the of that same lead line and it would sound like there's two distinct voices going on. I believe that technique is still used. Yes. So for this, basically you have it so that it sounds like John's singing with himself, but he only needed to record one take. And then obviously the Beatles throughout the rest of their career will still do a lot of rich harmonies. So they they won't be lacking with this, but where this technique will go Mm -hmm. is phasers. So we'll talk about this more on a technical episode I will do with Ed at some point. But uh, guitar phasers will be kind of directly out of this technology, where you have, again, one lead and then an artificially slowed or sped lead on the bottom, which gives you the sense of of phasing, which sounds, well, sounds fun. And we'll talk about more what that sounds like later. But again, it's just an example of the technological leaps they were making on this album. 
I'll throw this to you because it's the first time we're really bringing this up. How do you feel that Paul and John's voices work together on this album or in the Beatles catalog in general? That's a good question because it's almost too difficult for me to imagine the Beatles without it. That their vocal harmonies and the way they're intertwined, the way that George supports them, you know, it's the spine of their... It's their signature. Yeah, of their sound, yeah. They wouldn't sound like the Beatles if they didn't have that. Mm -hmm. And I was going to say, I think that, uh, frankly, I think John always sounds like John. Mm. And I think actually Paul's magic is that he actually puts on voices, not in a a sneaky way, but as in, Mm -hmm. I actually think he's got a pretty good, uh, I'll call it like a vocal hue almost. Mm -hmm. Well, he's got his head voice, which is up in his throat and through his nose. And then he's got his uh, diaphragm voice, which is through his chest and through his belly. Yep. And those are really the two distinct flavors of Paul, but then he can sort of dance between mix them. and blend but i think he yeah, yeah. he really sounds quite varied throughout his different types of songs whereas i think uh john Owens sounds like john and it's lovely and i actually think you're right like their their voices really are the beatles in many ways mm-hmm. the, the the central spine mm-hmm. fabulous so then we come to another george song again like george getting in his innings here I want to tell you. And to me, this sounds like a throwback song. Like it sounds like the earlier kind of jangly guitar love song hits. To me, it would fit really well on Rubber Soul. That this, this song can kind of bridge between those two albums. Like, oh yeah, these two albums were released back to back. Yeah, because it, it's got the kind of earliness, but with the, the soundscape they're going for now. Mm-hmm. It does have some dissonance in it, which they didn't include in their early stuff. There's like a piano part that repeats that you can, it's not pleasant to listen to. Uh, I believe it's part of either the chorus or the pre-chorus that I think creates an interesting tension. Yeah, and I think the fade-in at the very beginning of this song where the guitar just plays the riff and then you got the snare drum snap. I think every rock artist that heard that, they've all wanted to emulate that at some point. Oh yeah. Because it just is so cool. Like It sounds great. The fade in with the snare snap and then like the real tight riff just leading it off. It actually gives me chills thinking about it. (laughs) (laughs) You can tell how much of a music. It's actually disturbing to watch, but I'm I'm so happy for you. (laughs) It just tickles me. Ooh. (laughs) Yeah, no, and it's funny, I guess like you're right, that real like riff focused rock isn't gonna be on vogue probably until Led Zeppelin in nineteen sixty-nine and then and then on. Because none of these are actually very riffy songs. But that's going to be the sound of rock for like five years in the 70s. Yeah. Um, so last thing I wanted to mention, uh, because I brought it up up top, is this uh, like this is George Harrison sort of confessing his sort of struggles with uh, his psychological you know, mood disorders or whatever, whatever undiagnosed things that they were all dealing with. Because, you know, it's I want to tell you, yep. I feel hung up and I don't know why. So this is his help. So I, I think that I thought that that was very interesting and probably it has to do with some, uh, some LSD use, probably unlocking quote unquote, unlocking parts of his brain. Stuff he's doing yeah. With. Yeah. Be like, Oh yeah. Like I really do not feel, I do not feel good all the time. It's almost like he's in therapy. It's like, I want to tell you again, very interesting with this whole kind of, uh, you know, this is the first, uh, the, the Beatles first awakening, trying to tell you about their state from the yellow submarine. So then we come to Got to Get You in My Life, 
And the, the story is so simple. It's just Paul's ode to his love of marijuana. Now, obviously, it, you know, whatever. That's a, it's a very simple thing, and this is what Paul said. Like, Paul's just like, yep, this is my ode. I just love it. But I chose to put my own layer of, of metaphysics on it. Whereas I actually see this song about, like, joy and the confidence they have in this period. This isn't Paul's word. This is just mine layering onto the song. You can speak for Paul. Of course. Right? Paul, Paul's authorized you to speak for him. <laughs> authorized explanation of this song. I love this song. It's so fun without being childish. And I love the backstory for it. He originally wrote this song after seeing Stevie Wonder perform at a nightclub in Britain. Because uh, almost the whole thing with the horns and like the sort of upbeat driving style is very R&B, like Little Richard or Stevie Wonder, Motown. Sure. Like Paul's kind of ode to soul. Mm. Yeah. And maybe maybe he saw like, oh, there's a relationship between this feeling and yeah. the, my feeling about marijuana. <laughs> sure. Yeah. No, and that's why I, I choose to see this as a song about joy more generally. Mm-hmm. And I was going to say, I think it's the, it's kind of like fun and jaunty. And then he's doing a little bit of uh, screaming in the middle bits there. Mm-hmm. So I actually feel like it's just got this fabulous dynamic. Again, it's kind of got the light and dark of Paul. Well, not even, no, the light and, and, and more intense light of Paul. Yeah, the light and the lit up form of Paul. Enough with the entendres there, Nicholas. <laughs> I hear a little bit of Penny Lane in this song. Like, ooh. This is like a precursor to Penny Lane with the horns and the jauntiness. And they've been recorded contemporaneously, like mm-hmm. Penny Lane's from this recording session. Mm-hmm. What's not to like about it? <laughs> yep. Yeah. And as I stated before, I think this would have been a great song to lead off the album. Yeah. Yes. Uh, I know. I I completely agree. And I think it's kind of because it's it's joyful and confident, like it doesn't have all the weirdness that we'll get into in a second. Mm-hmm. I actually think it would have been a great mission statement at the top. So we come then to the the dark and twisted masterpiece of this album, Tomorrow Never Knows. So the backstory to this is that it's the first song they worked on for this album. And I love that because it has the mission statement. So the very first thing about it is that it's got a drone the whole way through. The second thing about it, it's got so much garbage put on top of it. And by garbage, I mean delightful backwards guitars and tape loops. There's just so much sound on it. The fourth thing about no, <laughs> yeah, I've already lost count. The third thing about it is uh, John asked George Martin, "Can you make me sound like the Dalai Lama singing on top of a mountaintop?" So George Martin is like, "Cool, I'm going to put your voice through a rotating Leslie speaker." So it gives you a woozy, epic sound, which John's voice has now. The fourth thing is Ringo's drum beat. Yeah, yeah. and then the fifth thing is that the lyrics come from the Tibetan Book of the Dead. So in this one song, you just have all of the best bits of this. And it's easily in my like top 10 Beatles songs. Easily in like my top 10 songs of all time, probably. Like it's, it's, it's way up there for me. It just, it's got so much going on. All in one little three-minute song. And the other thing about the song is it's just John strumming a C chord the whole time. It's funny because in the, in the re-release that they released very recently, you hear the, the initial... That, like the first recording of it. And of course it's hot garbage because it's just John strumming a C chord, <laughs> singing, and then Ringo doesn't quite have this drum part yet. It's just like boom, dip, boom, boom, dip. Like it's, it's 
simple uh-huh. and, and worse because this drum part is outrageous. Yes. And I actually couldn't find any information on where this drum part came from, but it is the glue that holds the song together for sure because there's so much going on and also nothing else going on. It's basically John singing and then this drum part. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm about to heat a hot piece of humble pie. I'm going to call it my own hypocrisy here because I said Good Day Sunshine was repetitive and I didn't like that song. But this song is very repetitive and I yep. like this song. So what's the difference? That's a very good question. And I guess I'll frame it rhetorically. <laughs> this song just has so much more heart yep. and soul. And I love the subject matter. It defines sort of psychedelia for me. and. I didn't know that they recorded this song first. And I'm also way, way on board that the, this was sort of their mission statement. And it set the tone for the entire album. Not quite in a concept album way, but close. No, it's as in a way of doing things. And I think it's that uh-huh, you've got yeah. the psychedelic lyrics, the cool instrumentation, the, you know, um, like studio effects. Basically that they've set a, an, a, an ethos or an ethos, whatever it is for how this recording session was going to go. I, I also think it's a masterpiece. Like, I, I, the, the amount of effort that was put in the song was like prominently much more than the rest of the songs. Even like with, I also saw the credits of Yellow Submarine, there are many people doing the chain sounds, the yeah. clink, clicking the glass. But that one is like, oh, it's simple children's song. But this one is just massive, the work of it. and. The drum, yes, I have to (laughs) emphasize on the drumming is is monstrous. And the fact that they wrote this song first and then put it in the last to make people, at least for listeners nowadays, look forward to their next album. Yep. It's so, yeah, it's like, oh, you did this at the very end of your album. What's your next one? Yep. No, that's that's a really good point. Yeah. Like this really... Um, obviously no one else, not even the Beatles yet knew that Sergeant Peppers was coming, but I feel just like, oh my God, like music could be this now. And actually I'm going to throw this at both of you. Cause obviously it would have been a physically demanding thing to do to put all the tape loops on. So I suspect this will be the first popular song to have put this much extra sound on a song. And there's uh there's seagulls going off. There's backwards guitar whizzing by. I feel like there's like a constant buzz coming from somewhere. Like there's just a lot layered on this, which of course we're used to now. Cause I think of like Tame Impala or MGMT where there's just like psychedelic sounds everywhere, whizzing all over the place. But this must have been absolutely outrageous. Like at the time when the last, like your last hit single you heard was God only knows, or wouldn't it be nice? Very, very delightful songs, Mm -hmm. richly orchestrated or whatever. But then this is just tape loops smashing you in the face. And then the other kind of technical thing they added for this is that they really close mic'd the drums. Hmm. So this is, I think, the first time they uh, famously stuffed Ringo's bass drum so they could close mic the drums. So you get that really compressed, in-your-face drum sound. Oh, okay. So, like, the song attacks you in that way. Yeah. But then also because there's like the, the the rotating speakers and stuff everywhere, it also, as you say, sounds massive. Yeah. yeah. At the time, no one had ever heard anything like this, which is kind of crazy to think about because we have all of this knowledge of music history and experience with music. And it's weird to think that 
the first person to pick up this record and listen to this song, they must have must have blown their minds. And I think also because we're just at the advent of the psychedelic sixties, so I think the lyrics as well. We were like, turn off your mind, relax, mm-hmm. and float downstream. Those are good lyrics, actually. I, I was trashing on their lyrics, but that was that. Those are some great lyrics. I almost don't think there was another band that would. I'm trying to think of what the word is. Like it's almost a cliche how how psychedelic these lyrics are. They were inventing it. So. They were inventing it, and I was gonna say I feel like later we'll come to you know I don't know like the Doors or something. I mean we won't. Someone will look into the Doors, and I feel like that like super like go into the journey in your mind type of lyrics. I think these are the OG, and I actually can't think even by the Beatles themselves. I can't think of a time where they did this better. Yeah, yeah. Because I think these are also just like outright just saying investigate yourself, go on this mental journey or like whatever they're trying to say. Mm-hmm. Like it's all just one crazy trip, man. I don't think any other band nailed that sound or that those lyrics or this sound or whatever. And I actually can't think of many songs like this again. Yeah, I think any band that has tried to copy this has failed, and that's why we haven't heard it. No. Yep, no, that's probably true. Okay. So I think that's all we got for the songs. But I'm going to leave you here with uh, my Beatles theories, and I want to hear your your thoughts on them. So the Beatles obviously are the rock band, the the rock band that starts it all. And I have a theory about why they kind of have lasting cultural relevance for us. And it comes down to these four kind of points. So the first one is they they write 200 songs and most of them are really good. That's nice and easy. Like that'll help make you a legend. The next one is that they map so beautifully onto the 60s as in they're a bright boy pop band they go psychedelic during this period, but they don't go too dark like the Doors. They're like accessibly psychedelic. And then they kind of go off into their groovy, just before pre-70s kind of classic rock and soul inflected phase. So they map very well. And, you know, the fact that they literally last from 1960 to 1970, that they have this perfect little decade to their name. Mm-hmm. So that's part two. Part three is that I feel like their story, like their intrapersonal story, gets mapped onto every creative project from here to eternity in so much as no matter how true any of these were, they had the archetypes. So you have the clean-cut, cute, yet dictatorial and creative mastermind Paul. You've got the dark genius John. You've got George, the quiet, cute one, who was overlooked even though he was really the best one there the whole time. Mm -hmm. And then you've got groovy Ringo keeping it together. So I think the interplay between these kind of four creative personalities will get mapped onto every project ever, in so much as every band from here on out, and probably every movie and whatever, will be like, God, you're such a John, you're such a Paul, you're such a Ringo. And then finally, I think the thing that's kept them alive in the music world, and I I can speak from personal experience, and then I'll speak for Nick as well here, because we have shared experience with this. I think because they don't have a signature sound like Led Zeppelin or Yes or whatever, and though I think they're all unbelievably talented and really beautiful musicians and singers, they don't actually have a voice that you could never replicate like Freddie Mercury. I think it makes them completely coverable. And that for for the rest of time, people will be able to play Beatles songs because it, it can sound good in any style, by any band, like you can make a Beatles song sound great because they're great songs, well-written, but you're not like, oh, I wish Freddie was singing this 
or I wish Jimmy Page was playing guitar. The one caveat to this, and I also want to hear your thoughts on all this, I think the only one of them who actually has a sound, ironically, is Ringo. Hmm. That's a hot take. Like, I actually think Ringo has a drum sound. Famously, people have always disparaged his drumming skills, but I actually think out of all four of them, Ringo's the only one where, like, that's a Ringo drum beat. And it's kind of, as I say, especially we're coming into it this period, kind of like a rolling tom beat. As I say, he just almost plays fills all the time. And it sounds like a Ringo drum beat. Like, it's not a complicated Phil Collins or Bill Bruford drum beat. And it's not a simple four on the floor, you know, like Motown drum beat or something. It's got just a lot going on. So those are my various theories for why the Beatles still have this relevance or this long longevity. Well, I think you could probably write a book about this if you <laughs> yep. do enough research. Yep. So I think the first point you made is the most obvious and therefore it is definitely probably the most likely reason why uh, and it's because they have lots of songs and most of them are good and you said they don't have like a monolithic signature sound like all of our songs are blues like Eric Clapton or uh, Led Zeppelin or whatever or all of our songs are psychedelic like The Doors and I think I I agree with that but I think the one thing that is their signature sound because they don't have the most amazing guitarist, the most amazing lead vocalist, the most amazing drummer, they're all experts at what they do, even though they're not Rush. You know, they don't have degrees in it. They have degrees in life of playing music. But what really stands out about them is their songwriting skills. And it's why the first point is probably the main reason why they'll last forever, is because they have some of the best songwriting talent in one place at one time, you can't really ever replicate that. I don't, in fact, I think so many people have tried thinking that they could. I think I, I think it's just the quality of their songwriting, their story, yeah, their story can last forever, um, which I think the map to the 60s and then the sort of like the boy band types um, can sort of be grouped together because it's just sort of their story. Um, because they, like I said before, when they uh, were talking about uh, it's something about their like personal psyche, um, is that they lived through something that though only those four people know what it was like, and no one will ever experience what that was like again. And I think that is always an interesting story. Everyone's going to want to tune in for that. So, on t- so you got the history, you got the music, and then I'd say. Those are the two main reasons why they'll last forever because they've captured our imagination with their story and their songs. I bet people will keep releasing Beatles documentaries uh, for forever. generations. Yeah. Yeah. And actually I'll, I'll throw in the, uh, just to, to build on your point about their actual story being unreplicatable. Because uh, I, I can hear the audience on the, now saying like, oh, but like Led Zeppelin and One Direction, like there was other mega famous bands. I think the thing that the Beatles pioneered is that they were the first time there was jet setting global superstars with merchandise and screaming. They wouldn't have called them groupies at this point. I think when Led Zeppelin did it, there was a cottage industry of, you know, like the rock and roll hotels Basically, people, frankly, supply women and drugs to these touring bands. Um, There will be concert promoters. There will be stadiums. There's going to be an industry for this. 
I think for the Beatles, they literally show up to like these stadiums with basically like amps, just personal amps and like unmiked drums. And it will be the first time they'll do like a global tour with all of the trappings that we'd recognize, but they'd had to have troubleshotted it themselves. Right. They were the pioneers. They were the first to do what many people have tried to do since then. And I don't think any band has ever been as popular globally. Yeah, uh, I know some bands catch fire in certain areas. You know, BTS, you know, there's a huge BTS following in America. I don't know uh, what it's like in the UK, but like yeah. no. they're huge, yeah. but they'll, they're not as huge as the Beatles. They may have more eyeballs on them just because there's more people yeah. in the world now. But like the Beatles, they sort of set the trend. Yeah, I, I'd have said the only only... Queen and Michael Jackson, I think, are the only two that spring to mind who I think could have been on that same. I think Michael Jackson's up there. Yeah. Like outrageous. But level. he's not a band. He's a single person. Yeah. And uh, so and, and that's that's sort of how I'm classifying it. Yeah. I was just imagining like the time before Internet and where people don't have many choices. And then it's just like it must be their talent plus luck <laughs> yes yeah that they can be put on that spot so i probably a few months ago went to the beatles story the museum in liverpool uh-huh. and the thing that really jumps out at me they obviously have the whole spectrum of basically they have photos of the beatles at every point in their career and then even in like 1960 1962 it's like three dudes and then john lennon is staring at you from eternity <laughs> and I think there's the, like, you know, that unquantifiable, just that it factor. Yeah. yeah. And I think it's like, uh, I think the Beatles had that where obviously they had all this music, but I think they must have been such a delight in interviews and whatnot. Like, I think they were a commodifiable band as people. Yeah. And they're I'm going to be so, sounding a bit superficial, but they're pretty dudes. No, I, I I mean that's like ninety percent of music as well. <laughs> yeah, they, they they were good looking guys. They were quite fashionable in their time. They they set fashion. And yeah, no, they they they're good looking guys, like good looking and affable gentlemen. Yeah, they're people you'd want to hang out with. Yes, mm. and it's funny. Even now, I was like, man, I'd love to just run into Paul, mm-hmm. and I feel like I wouldn't even be starstruck by him. I'd just be like, hey, it's Paul. I'd love to ask you some questions about your storied career. Anytime like someone says like you can have a, you can have six dinner guests and they can be anyone at any time throughout history. And Paul's always on there. <laughs> so where does this sit in the history of the Beatles for you? Um, I believe I addressed this uh, up top and I'll just restate it again, that this is my second favorite Beatles album. I love this middle period of the Beatles where they're transitioning from their love me Jews uh, into their, uh, come togethers and because it really uh, encapsulates all that of that the Beatles are capable of doing in a very succinct nicely wrapped package so you get to see a little bit of all of their talents and all of their creativity kind of smashed into one I love the the a rubber sole and revolver for that those reasons and then where do you put this on the timeline of Prague I guess this is a nice easy one because it's the first episode <laughs> <laughs> Well, in the timeline of Prague, I feel like it's got to be first. And I and I'm I'm saying that I came up with this idea. Ian took the idea from me. <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> yeah, of course, of course. No, I, I 
I'm beginning to understand why you put it first. I understand it a lot better after I've talked to, to after talking about it than I did when we first uh, started talking about it. So I am behind it because uh, it's essentially Prague condensed down into bite-sized segments without all of the insane instrumentation ability of some of the future prog musicians in terms of this uh, timeline. Yeah. But you can get that for sense of experimentation and, and wanting to do something with an album beyond cute little collections of love singles and stuff. Fabulous. So my, my cards on the table for this album. So I really like this album, but where it sits for me in the history of the Beatles is I hear it. And then I'm just hungry to get to the next thing. And as like I, I feel like it's got all of the elements I'm looking forward to in Sgt. Pepper's and Magical Mystery Tour and even the White Album. So I hear this and I'm like, um, I don't want to say a dress rehearsal because it's a phenomenal album, but I hear it and I'm like, okay, there's a lot of these good elements I love. And then I'm just excited to get to Sgt. Pepper's. So there you have it. That was The Beatles' Revolver. I have been your host, Ian Prize, and this has been a sort of young person's guide to prog rock. Feel free to follow us over at Instagram at progfrogpod, and if you've got any longer things you want to say to us, feel free to email us at helloprogfrog at gmail.com. I want to thank my guests, Mang and Nick. Thank you. Hi, thanks for having me. I love talking about the Beatles and, and music in general. Happy to be here. So that's where we'll leave it today. Revolver was a success, and everyone could go home and get some rest. But mad scientist Paul McCartney was already back in the lab creating something so audacious that it would start a podcast 60 years later. Next week, join us for Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. Band.